Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bible study. It's always a joy to share this time with you. Again, I, I want to express gratitude for your commitment to serious, in-depth Bible study. We are making our way through 1 Corinthians, this wonderful letter from Paul to this early Christian community. We occupy our attention for several weeks. Uh, we're in chapter 1. Uh, we're in a part of 1 Corinthians where Paul is admonishing the church at Corinth for all the divisions that have been created among the Christians there so soon after he planted the Christian faith there. Uh, he's, he's, he's attacking their lack of unity, and he's trying to help them find unity in Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll begin today in chapter 1 at verse 18. And as he discusses the need for spiritual unity, he keeps returning to Jesus Christ. Because that's where we find our spiritual unity. We might agree or disagree on a lot of other issues, but as to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there can be very little disagreement there. That's where the creeds of the church helps us. That's where the Christian community, the communion of saints helps us. That's where we help each other. And that's certainly where the New Testament becomes very, very important for us. So again, he's pointing them to the gospel, which we talked about last week, the good news, the evan evangelical good news of uh, who Jesus Christ is. And because of who he is, what he accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and gift of his spirit to his people. So uh, we are continuing as he's uh, trying to call the people in Corinth to spiritual unity, to the foundation of their faith in Jesus Christ. At verse 18, Paul continues saying, For the word of the cross... He left off in verse 17, making a reference to the cross and the centrality of the cross to the, to the gospel. Uh, the gospel is about the cross, the work of Christ. And when we talk about the cross, that's what we mean is the work of Christ and what it accomplished for the human family. So he's continuing to talk about the cross. That's going to help him talk more about Jesus Christ. In verse 18, again, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I think if you were to ask the Apostle Paul how he would divide up the human family, uh, he would say there's a lot of diversity in the human family. Uh, there's Jew and there's Gentile. There's free and there's slave. There's male and there's female. There's a lot of richness in the diversity of the human family. But when it comes to spiritual issues and the relationship to Jesus Christ, you see in this text, verse 18, he really sees only two groups. He sees those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Um, those who are perishing are the ones who think that the word of the cross is folly. They don't receive the word of the cross. They don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to reject that means that you're participating in perishing. But then he says there's the other group. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, being saved is a good biblical term. Um, to be New Testament about the word saved, you need to see it in past, present, and future tense. Uh, because the New Testament uses uh, the word sozo in the Greek in past, present, and future tense. So here he's talking about being saved. You know, we can talk about it in the past tense. I have been saved. 
because of my faith in the work of Christ 2,000 years ago, I have been saved. I have been justified in Christ. I have been made right in Christ. My position has changed. Now I'm in Christ. I have been saved. Here you see he mentions being saved. That's the, that's the present tense of salvation. Uh, we're saved, past tense, when we let Christ have our sins, we receive the forgiveness, and the new life is ours. But then every day we are in the process of being saved from the very power of that sin. God has forgiven that sin in Christ when we first came to Christ. We were justified. We have been saved in that sense. But every day we're being sanctified. We're being cleaned up by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every day we're on a journey through a process of being freed from the power of that sin in our lives. We've already been pardoned because of the guilt of that sin, but we still have to deal with the power of that sin in our lives. Uh, remember that great anthem of Methodism, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. In our, in, when we first come to Christ in our justification, we are saved, past tense. But it is his breaking, continual, ongoing breaking of the power of canceled sin, pardoned sin in our life that is bringing us more and more freedom. So here Paul, in verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, is talking about being saved. That's the present tense of salvation. And there is a future tense of salvation. We will be completely and perfectly saved one day. We were saved from um, the penalty of sin. We are in the process of being saved daily from the power of sin. And there will come a point when we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself when we're on the other side. And we'll no longer have to battle sin or brokenness that so occupies our journey here in this world. And again, he says this, this being saved, whether past, present, or future, is connected to the cross. The word of the cross is what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross uh, for the people who come to embrace that good news, come to embrace that gospel. To not embrace that and to be in that process of uh, being saved from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin means that you're in that other category. You are perishing. And Paul, being a good Jew, he lived and died a good Jew. He never thought he left the Jewish faith. Uh, like a lot of Jews, he had his own way of being Jewish. You know, there were Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. Uh, he had his own way of being Jewish, and he was a Jewish messianist. He was a Jew who had embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who came in fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures according to Jewish prophecy. And that's why throughout Paul's letters... As he's proclaiming Christ, he's quoting the only Bible he knows. And that's what we would call the Old Testament. So here in verse 19, he quotes what we would call the book of Isaiah, verse 29, uh, chapter 29, verse 14, uh, where he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So he's mentioned the word of the cross being folly. To, to, the, to, to this world, being followed to the people who are so enamored with this world. And he's saying, Isaiah, the prophet said that God would one day destroy the wisdom of the wise, and he would, uh, he would, he would thwart the discernment of those who are trying to find discernment through the wisdom of this world. Uh, the Bible's very clear that God's way of thinking 
is higher than our way of thinking, is different from our way of thinking. Through the scriptures, he has revealed much to us about his way of thinking, but there's still much that's mysterious to us about his way of thinking. You know, had, had you asked me a thousand years before the coming of Christ, would God somehow save the human family by the death of a criminal on a Roman cross, an emblem of execution, I would have had a really hard time accepting that because it really makes no common sense that the death of a criminal uh, at the beginning of the common era on a cross at the hands of the Roman Empire uh, there outside of Jerusalem could do anything for me today. But the truth of the cross, the good news, the gospel, is this is, way, this is God's way of saving humanity. This is God's wisdom. And God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. Paul's going to elaborate on this. God's wisdom is confounding to the world. That's why we can't trust common sense. We can't trust our rational thought. We have to somehow go to something beyond the rational. And God is beyond the rational. He embraces the rational, but he's beyond the rational. So God's way of doing things are mysterious to us oftentimes. So the word of the cross is mysterious, that that is what saves the human race, that the work of the cross, what Jesus did on that day outside the city of Jerusalem, had cosmic universal significance. Paul continues, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Again, Paul was trained in, in both in the best of Judaism of his day and the best of the Greco-Roman world of his day. So he's using what he learned in Greek rhetoric here. He's asking these rhetorical questions again like we saw last week. And he's asking these questions. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So he's, he's saying that God's, God's wisdom is confounding to this world. And the wise and the scribe and the debater of this age and the people who are filled with the wisdom of this world, um, if they just rely on that rather than the power of the Spirit, they will never comprehend or apprehend the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. There's back to preaching again, to save those who believe. Now, you can do a couple things here with the Greek. You can say that the reference that Paul is making is to the folly of what we preach, which again, the whole good news of the gospel, saving the human race through someone being crucified as a criminal at the hands of Rome, you could say that that whole gospel is folly to the world, or you could just say the act of preaching is folly, not so much the message, but the act of preaching is folly. Uh, this verse, the Greek, will allow you to go both ways. Uh, you see here that the English Standard Version that is in front of me chooses to say, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And my guess is that the editors, translators of the ESV are going back to the context 
where Paul's saying in verses 18 uh, through 20 that um, God's, God's word of the cross appears as foolishness to the world. But to those who receive it, it is that which saves us. If we believe, he says in verse 21, we are saved. Verse 22 for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Again, in Paul's day, to the Jewish world, they would divide the world into two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles or the Greeks or the heathens or the nations. Uh, you got the Jews and then you have everyone else. And that's really important for Paul because Paul sees himself as a good Jew, but he's taking this Jewish gospel based on Jewish text about a Jewish Messiah who came in accordance of Jewish prophecy. He's taking this form of Judaism to the Greeks, the Gentiles, the heathen, to the nations. And Paul, throughout all of his letters, is going to make a strong case that uh, God prophesied throughout all of what we call the Old Testament that this, this Judaism, this, this way of being Jewish, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, somehow would one day go to the nations. And that's what's happened through Christianity. And Paul saw that he himself was specifically called uh, to um, be a, an apostle to the Gentiles or the Greeks. Um, but he's talking about these two groups here in verse 22. Uh, he's talking rather stereotypically. He says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. You remember when Jesus was on the cross, some of the people there gathered uh, around the cross outside Jerusalem, they, they asked for a sign. They asked for him somehow to miraculously come down off the cross. So if you look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of signs and wonders in the Hebrew Bible. So he's saying here the Jews demand signs or wonders, but the Greeks seek wisdom. And again, Paul was educated at Tarsus. Uh, he, he knew the Greco-Roman world well. Uh, he, knew Gre he knew Greek philosophy. He knew uh, Greek rhetoric. So uh, that's why he says the Greeks seek Sophia. The Greeks seek wisdom. But he says in verse 23, but we, we confound both. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, the word stumbling block in Greek is scandalon. It's a scandal. A stumbling block, a scandal to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So this preaching of Christ, and Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew, Mashiach or Messiah. We preach this Messiah crucified. Uh, no one was looking for a Messiah who would come and be crucified. Uh, but that's what we have in Christ, Christ crucified. And that's why this, this whole concept is a stumbling block. It's a scandal to Jews. They, they saw that Messiah was to come and to rule in great power and might and restore the glory of the Davidic kingdom to the Jewish people. Uh, they had no concept. We can look back now in Scripture and see that it's there like in the, the suffering servant oracles of Isaiah. Uh, we can find places where we think it's being prophesied. We can find text in the Hebrew Bible that we can apply to the concept of a crucified Messiah. But um, I'm not surprised that no one, almost no one in uh, Jesus' day thought that Messiah would be crucified. And that's why the bulk of Jews in Jesus' day and in our day see Jesus as either a false Messiah or a failed Messiah. 
because he doesn't seem to bring a messianic kingdom with him. But uh, Paul will talk in his letters about the messianic kingdom. Jesus has brought a kingdom about, but that's really another topic for another day. But he's just saying that this crucified Messiah is a stumbling block or a scandal to Jews, and it's complete and utter folly to Gentiles. But that's what he says we are preaching. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, he particularly saw his ministry to the Gentiles. He particularly saw his ministry as one of taking the God of Israel and taking the Jewish Messiah to the nations. So that's why he talks here about those being called both Jews and Greeks. Greeks are the Gentiles, everyone else besides the Jews. And he's saying that Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. Uh, Paul would be like the rest of us. He understands why common sense wouldn't get you to that point. That seeing that this crucified criminal, this Galilean preacher, somehow is the incarnation of the power of God and the incarnation of the wisdom of God. Common sense won't get you there, but spiritual sense will. And Paul will talk about that later in uh, 1 Corinthians. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, God, the way God operates, particularly in the gift of uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah who is crucified, is, is something that confounds the human race and particularly the human wisdom. But God's wisdom is wiser than ours. God's weakness is stronger than our power. And then verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, he says to the church at Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Uh, I find it interesting the way Paul says this about the church in Corinth. He says not many of them were wise. Um, not many of them were powerful of a noble birth. And I think probably the bulk of the Christian community in Corinth, the bulk of the people who came to Christ in Corinth would have been uh, pretty run-of-the-mill people. And in the first century Greco-Roman world, that would mean poor. That would include the slaves. That would include the freedmen who had been slaves. Uh, but the way he says not many of you are wise, not many of you are powerful, not many of you are noble birth, implies that some of them were. Some of the early Christian community um, were powerful. Some of them were of noble birth and wise. We know, for instance, in Corinth that the city treasurer, a man by the name of Erastus, um, became a follower of Jesus Christ and became prominent in the church. So the early Christian community was diverse across socioeconomic levels. Uh, usually we, we agree that most of the early Christian community for the first 200 years was primarily an urban movement in the cities. That's why you see Paul in places like Athens and Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica. It was an urban movement in cities because that's where the people were, basically. And it was a movement among um, the people, which usually meant rather poor, but obviously there were some wise and powerful and people of noble birth, like Erastus, who uh, came to Christ and uh, were converted under Paul's ministry. Verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that 
are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Again, this whole way of God working through Christ really does not make any natural common sense, but it makes perfect spiritual supernatural sense. And then verse 30 and 31, he he wraps up this section by again taking you back to Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a verse that John Wesley loved to preach from because it's a verse that extolled the... uh, The offices of Christ helped you understand who Christ was. Verse 30, and because of him, uh, the him here is, is probably God, because of him, because of him, you are now in Christ Jesus. You are now incorporated in the body of Christ. You are now in the spirit of Christ. You now have the spirit of Christ. You are now in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So he's telling us this Jesus is God's wisdom, and we know that. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. Uh, That's the wisdom of God. So Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. He's the righteousness of God. He's the righteousness of God incarnate that sets us right, that justifies us. The word righteousness here in the Greek is the same word that we would make for justification. It's the righteousness of Christ that sets us right. Uh, And Paul says here, he is our sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. It is Jesus Christ who is our holiness. We are clothed in Christ. It is Christ working in us day by day to uh, defeat the power of sin in our lives. He's our sanctification. It's not us somehow doing it on our own power. It's not a self-help program. It's a Jesus help program. He does it in us. And then he says, and redemption. Redemption is a term that, uh, that means uh, reclaimed. It's a term that comes from the slave market. To be redeemed means you've been bought back and set free. So Paul is saying here, and this is why John Wesley loved to preach this text, this Jesus Christ is wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. This is who Jesus Christ is. And then you conclude Paul being the good Jew, using the only Bible he would have, which is what we would call the Old Testament. He quotes Jeremiah, and sort of a paraphrase, he quotes Jeremiah. I'm sure he's sort of doing it from memory. He references Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, when he concludes by saying, so that as it is written. And by the way, only Jews and Christians are the ones among all the world's religions that use that phrase and are enamored by that phrase as it is written. Jews and Christians are people of the book. And he's referencing what we would call the Old Testament here when he says, so that as it is written, and the quotation is, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it's not about us. It's not about what we accomplish, what we do. Christianity is not just a self-help program. But in Jesus Christ, we find wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption incarnate. So if we participate in any of these, we boast not in who we are, but we boast in the Lord. We boast in the work of the Lord. Well, that's enough for today. That takes us to the end of chapter 1. So uh, in our next session, we'll start in chapter 2. Again, thank you so much for your commitment to being people of the book, as John Wesley called us. Um, Thank you for your commitment to serious and in-depth Bible study. God bless you.